Our scripture passage this morning is from the book of Daniel. Uh, technically, we're looking at Daniel chapters 11 and 12 this morning, but I'm only going to be reading chapter 12. So if you have a Bible, we would encourage you to turn to that chapter and follow along with us. The passage will also be up here on the screen. Daniel chapter 11, chapter 12, but I am reading Daniel chapter 12, and we will go back and look at Daniel 11, as you'll see in a minute. And this is our last message in our summer series here in the book of Daniel. If you are able to stand, please stand for the reading of and the honoring of God's word. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream, How long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream, he raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time, and that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, O oh my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away, and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. But go your way till the end. And you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, this is a complicated text. It's a long text. One of the more fascinating passages we've covered, I think, here at City Church. And so uh, we again, we come to you, Lord, in weakness, as Tyler was just talking about, desperately needing your help. There's no way we can possibly glean anything from this text and apply it without your help. There's no way. And so would you move in great power? Would you surprise us, Lord, in the way that you work in us? Uh, and of course, at the end of the day, anyone who preaches, including myself, is a weak preacher, and so I need your help. And Lord, would you equip me and empower me accordingly this morning? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I think I've mentioned before that uh, we would run far, far less marathons if we weren't allowed to tell anybody that we were running one or uh, allowed to put one of those little stickers on our car. And I tell you that uh, <clears throat> because 
I want you to know that I'm aware of this issue before I tell you about a race that I ran or <laughs> races. If you have ever run a road race, as I have, you'll know that course designers will sometimes have you pass right by the finish line even when you're only like halfway done with the race. It's a very tantalizing thing for race course designers to design, you know? So as you pass the finish line, you see volunteers are setting out bananas, they're setting out day-old pastries from Panera. And even though I'm typically very neutral about bananas, uh, I don't love, love them, I don't hate them. I've never been to the grocery store just to get bananas, if that makes sense. So I'm very neutral about bananas, but when you're running, when you're doing a race, especially when you're like halfway in, races do something to you emotionally. So you see these bananas being set out and these day-old pastries and you just tears are coming down your cheeks like, I got eight miles left, but eventually I'm going to get the bananas and the water in a, in a croissant. In many respects, that's what we are actually doing this morning. We are passing by the finish line, you might say, while we're still running the race. The same thing Daniel was doing back in 536 B.C. when he originally received the vision we're unpacking today in chapters 11 and 12. Last week in chapter 10, we discussed what amounts to the prologue to this vision, and we considered the realness of spiritual warfare in the context of Daniel's very spectacular encounter with an angel. Now that same angel sent to Daniel unfolds the vision, which is a prophetic foretelling of events yet to come. And in doing so, we, along with Daniel, are duly encouraged as we pursue, as we've been talking about this whole summer, as we pursue resilient, joyful faith in seasons of darkness and chaos. And those who are opposing God, as we'll find out, are duly warned. So those of us who are walking with God in seasons of chaos and darkness will be very encouraged, and those opposing God are duly warned. I cannot imagine a more appropriate way to end this book and thus our series. One reminder this morning, just one, or one reflection. Usually there's two or three, but just, just one. Blessed are those who wait. Blessed are those who wait. Remember, I'm going to repeat this, what we said last week, that chapters 10 through 12 contain Daniel's final vision, beginning with, again, a prologue in chapter 10, and then the details of this vision in chapters 11 and 12. Chapter 10 picks up in the third year of the Persian king Cyrus, around 536 B.C., which indicates a three-year forward time hop from chapter 9, during which the first wave of Israelite exiles returned to Jerusalem and Judah more broadly. Daniel remained in exile, though, mourning for his people, since the return to Judah was not going well at all. And as he mourned, the Lord ministered to him by means of this angelic being so spectacular that its mere presence and speech 
caused Daniel to pass out twice. But the angel strengthened Daniel. And now here in chapter 11, the angel unfolds a vision, which the angel refers to as the truth, verse 2, chapter 11, verse 2, that reveals a series of geopolitical conflicts that basically begins in Daniel's day and then continues until the end of the world as we know it. Shout out to R.E.M. And my goodness, this visions, it's, it's got more parts to it than, than Star Wars even with the spinoffs, okay? I just want you to know that before we get into it. We didn't read chapter 11, which contains the bulk of the vision, so here's a flyby. Saddle up your horses, folks. This is going to be a ride. I said this is going to be an unusual sermon, but we can do it, okay? So here we go. Here's a flyby of the series of events that are prophesied in chapter 11. Part 1, chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. Greece becomes a greater global power than Persia. Recall that Persia was the dominant geopolitical power when Daniel was in exile. When he specifically when he received this vision. And the fulcrum was a, a battle in which the Persian king Xerxes I, who was married to Esther, if you're familiar with her, attacked the Greeks and took a huge L. Part two, verses five and six. Eventually Greece splits into four kingdoms, the northern and southern kingdoms, moving into the foreground for the remainder of this vision, as you'll see. The northern and the southern kingdoms come into regular conflict with each other. And by the way, they are north and south with respect to the promised land. In other words, the land that the Israel exiles had begun to re-inhabit under the Persian king Cyrus. So the north and the south kingdoms are fighting all the time with each other. And at one point, the king of the south tries to forge an alliance with the king of the north by sending his daughter up to the king of the north so he can marry her. But the alliance falls apart. In the wake of the rather suspicious deaths of the northern king and the daughter of the southern king and eventually the southern king himself. Part 3, verses 7 through 9. The new king of the south attacks the king of the north, assumably to exact revenge in the wake of the failed alliance and the death of the former king's daughter. He takes the capital and some of their gods and images and vessels before forming a new alliance with the north. Part 4, verses 10 through 13. The tables turn. Or if you're an office fan, well, 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 how they turn tables. The northern kingdom regains some strength and advances against the south after some back and forth and tons of casualties the north basically prevails, and now there's instability in the south. Part 5, verses 14 through 16. Various forces try to take advantage of southern instability. Not hospitality, southern instability. Some among Daniel's own people, the Jewish people, apparently rebel against the southern powers and fail. But the king of the north is far more successful, winning additional military victories and even taking control of the glorious land. Part 6, verses 17 through 19. King of the north becomes a victim of his own 
hubris, trying to forge a very advantageous alliance with forces in the south by, you guessed it, giving his daughter in marriage to the king of the south. The problem is that she ends up supporting the king of the south instead of her dad. So the king of the north pivots his military campaign towards the coastlands and enjoys marginal success before getting absolutely shut down by a so-called commander. So he returns home only to be killed, apparently, by his own people. Nice. Part 7, verse 20, the new king of the north establishes an exactor of tributes, which tells us that the northern kingdom now owes tributes, basically taxes, to a foreign power, probably the power led by the mysterious commander who wiped the previous king in those coastlands. It also means that the former king of the north had to return from battle and tell his kingdom, hey, I did so awesome out there that now we all owe taxes to the guy I met near the beach, which just might explain why his own people killed him. Part 8, verses 21 through 27, after the king who exacted the tributes dies with hints in the text that his own tax collector killed him. Yet another king rises in the north. A contemptible person who bribes his way into power and rules vindictively. And after some challenges from the south, he ratchets up his campaign against them to an eleven. And this is when things start to get really rough. Part 9, verse 28, as the contemptible person returns from a somewhat mediocre campaign in the south, mixed results, he encounters some trouble in his land concerning the people of the Holy Covenant. So he hardens his heart and he works his will against them. In other words, he massacres them. Part 10, verses 29 and 30. Now the contemptible person becomes the victim of his own hubris, attacking the south once again, but this time getting wiped by the ships of Kittim. So he takes his anger out on the people of the Holy Covenant, apparently a second massacre or maybe an escalation of the original massacre. Part 11, verses 30 through 35. This time the contemptible person's rage against the people of the Holy Covenant includes gross Interference with the religious practices and worship, ending the regular burnt offering and desolating the Jerusalem temple. Part 12, verses 36 through 39. The king does as he wills. He exalts himself and magnifies himself above every god and speaks astonishing things against the god of gods. He prospers till the indignation is accomplished for what is decreed shall be done. Those who acknowledge him he loads with honor. Part 13, verses 40 through 45. The southern king provokes the king who has been doing as he wills, who responds with unbridled rage, crusading into the glorious land, devoting tens of thousands to destruction, and then plundering the Egyptians. And then, with this palatial tent set up between the sea, in the glorious holy mountain, he comes to an end with none to help him. Part 14, last part. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered. 
everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And that is why you should become a Christian. Or stay one, if you already are one. I'm serious. That, that's my TED Talk right there. My TED Talk is a, is a series of skirmishes among the Greeks right here in Daniel chapter 11. Opa. And I'll give you three whys. So I'll give you three reasons why I believe that the vision we just unpacked should convince you to give yourself unto the Lord and follow Christ. Number one, this prophetic vision came to pass with stunning historical accuracy. The Seleucid kingdom to the north and the Ptolemaic kingdom to the south fought with each other, church, in precisely the ways described in parts 1 through 11. I mean, remember the, the suspicious deaths in part 2? Well, somewhere around 250 B.C., Ptolemy II, the king of the south, tried to forge an alliance with Antiochus II, the king of the north, by sending him his daughter Bernice. But Antiochus II was already married, and when his wife Laodicea heard about this plan, she poisoned her husband, Antiochus II, and Bernice. Just in line with the vision. In fact, this vision in chapter 11 is so accurate that some Daniel scholars cannot accept that this vision was originally given to Daniel in 536 B.C. It must have been some sort of historical postlude, you know, stylistically presented as a vision, something like that. But here's the thing. Here's my view on it. If the Son of God can rise again from the dead, I bet that God the Father can send prophetic emails without typos I bet he doesn't even have a subscription to Grammarly. A supernatural God worth believing in is going to give supernaturally insightful prophetic visions. And that's what we have here. Number two, the accuracy of this vision reminds us, church, that God is always in control. Nothing ever surprises him. Nothing ever takes him off guard. A reality that, by the way, applies personally to the rhythms of your everyday life, as well as more broadly to the twists and turns of geopolitical conflict. All of it. And there certainly is some emotional complexity here. God's control, which, which gets into the theme of sovereignty that comes up many times in the book of Daniel. God's control is kind of like eating a Flintstones vitamin when things are going our way and more like swallowing a horse pill when things are not. We'll come back to that later, but even now, even now, I would argue that it is far better 
to be on the side of the one who's in control of all things, even when it's emotionally difficult to do so, as opposed to taking matters into your own hands and naively pretending to have control of things you really don't have control of. This isn't a perfect analogy by any means, but taking matters into your own hands is kind of like playing Candyland as if it's a strategy game. It surely feels very empowering to do so, but that feeling is actually fool's gold and you'll teeter back and forth between unfounded self-assurance when you win and total despair when you lose. Number three, third reason why I think this vision in chapter 11 should make you a Christian. And this is the one I really want us to sit in this morning. God vindicates his people. God vindicates his people. You know, suffering has a lot of causes. Sometimes we suffer on account of our own sin. Sometimes we suffer on account of just living in a world that's not as it should be because of the effects of sin in general. And sometimes we suffer when other people sin against us. Some of that sin involving grievous, unspeakably evil injustices. Which is what the Jewish people, Daniel's people, ultimately experience at the hands of the contemptible person, the one we now know as Antiochus IV, from 167 to 164 B.C. And I want you to sit in this because these are real events. This is, we're not watching a movie right now. From 167 to 164 B.C., he systematically massacred the people of the Holy Covenant, that is the Jewish people, and desecrated the Jerusalem temple. Those who renounced their faith in God were potentially spared, but many who knew their God and took action, chapter 11, verse 32, which probably refers to the Maccabean revolt, if you've heard of that, were brutally tortured, killed, you name it, all of it. Horrifying. And you know what makes all of that even harder to take? especially after we just talked about God's control. Antiochus IV, to borrow a line from T.S. Eliot, met his demise um, not with a bang, but with a, a heck of a whimper. If anyone deserved a bang, you know, the most public and humiliating disposal possible, it was that guy. But historically, we know that Antiochus IV ended up dying in a relatively whatever military campaign in Persia. Just a run-of-the-mill conflict. And then he was gone. Was that still good news for the Jewish people? Obviously, yes. It ended several years of terrifying persecution. That's good. And the Maccabean Revolt, by the way, ultimately succeeded in regaining and rededicating the temple. Those are events that are celebrated at Hanukkah. But does this really, does this feel like just like full vindication? <laughs> I mean, what about all those people who were tortured and killed? What about the wise, verses 33 through 35 of chapter 11, the God-fearers who ministered to others during the persecution to help them persevere, only to be rewarded with stumbling, that is, violent death? 
What about all other martyrs, for that matter, past and present? Somewhere around one in seven Christians face persecution for their faith in 2021 with an average of approximately 16 Christians killed each day on account of following Jesus. What about, what about them? And I know that some of you can relate very personally to this. Maybe you haven't been persecuted specifically for your faith, but real evil has been done to you, and you don't feel all that vindicated. About that king in chapter 11, verse 36, who does as he wills, recall parts 12 and 13. That could be another reference to Antiochus IV which would make verses 36 through 45 basically a second telling, like a recapitulation of verses 21 through 35. Some hold this view, and they have understandable biblical reasons for doing so, one of them being that it makes sense for the vision to really zero in on Antiochus IV, given the terror that he was going to cause. But I hate to say it, this reign that this king who does what he wills is conducting. I hate to say it, but it seems even worse than Antiochus's reign. Plus the demise of this king between the sea and the glorious holy mountain doesn't fit all that well with what we know of Antiochus's death. And if that's the case, here's what that probably means, church. It means that a whole lot more chaos and violence and death is in store for the people of God. Perhaps that's an allusion to the Antichrist. I think it's hard to say for sure, one way or another. And you'll hear all sorts of additional hypotheses, some having to do with the sack of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Regardless, though, it suggests more devastating persecution and suffering for God's people. Persecution and suffering that do not appear to have been fully exhausted, despite all of the difficulties the Jewish people continued to endure after Antiochus IV, despite all the difficulties the Church of Jesus Christ has endured since Pentecost. Jesus himself tells his disciples in John 16, in this world you will have trouble. Or how about this exhortation from Jesus' very close disciple Peter? This is in 1 Peter chapter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. It's part of it for followers of Jesus. But along the way, the Lord promises to be with us and to uphold us. Do you, do you know that? Do you believe that? Do you believe that? We say stuff like that all the time. Do you believe it? He's in point this beautiful line in chapter 12, verse 1, about the angel Michael having charge over Daniel's people during their troubles. It doesn't mean the troubles aren't going to happen, but it changes how you read them, right? And eventually these troubles will end. God will deliver his people. Deliverance, I'm not making this up, read the text for yourself, that culminates in the resurrection of the dead. A resurrection in which some, verse 2, will awake to everlasting life, 
others to shame and everlasting contempt. And that everlasting life will belong to everyone whose name is found written in the book, verse 1. It will belong to the wise, verse 3, who will shine like the brightness of the sky above. And it will belong to those who turn many to righteousness, who will shine like the stars forever and ever. Again, there, there were some deliverances in store for God's people along the way to this final resurrection. Some of them might be in view here in chapters 11 and 12. It's, it's not crazy, for example, to think that the angel Michael's activity in chapter 12, verse 1, foretells the deliverance of the Jewish people from the clutches of Antiochus IV. But regardless of all of that, the real finish line for the people of God is the resurrection of the dead. Yes, preceded by very great difficulties, possibly even a formal period of, of great difficulty, commonly referred to as the tribulation. There are all sorts of views on this. I posted a lot of content and a chart online on Realm for you to consider if you'd like. Yes, all of that calamity, but then... Resurrection. doesn't matter how rough the journey might go or, or what kind of rough you experience. There's resurrection waiting at the end. I have a friend who just took in a two-month-old foster child. They're already a family of five. And now they've all had a stomach bug for a week. And it was still raging last night. There's resurrection for them at the end. Many of you have been wrestling with just crippling anxiety this past year related to work issues, child-rearing difficulties, financial concerns, etc. There's resurrection for you at the end. Mobs in the northeastern Indian state of Manipur have destroyed hundreds of churches and killed at least 100 Christians since May. There's resurrection for those martyrs at the end. And when the Lord's people rise, they are going to inherit perfect resurrection bodies. And they're going to shine like the stars. Especially those, and I think the biblical case for this is strong, especially those who have died on account of their faith. Notice, for example, chapter 11, verse 33, that the wise stumble, in other words, they, they die, did you catch this? So that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end. How long until this resurrection? I'm sure many of us who are in the dark are asking this question, like, how long is it going to be? Someone asked a similar question after Daniel was presented with the horror show of suffering that was still in store for his people. Maybe the angel that was actually giving him the vision. Chapter 12, verse 6, how long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And the answer was rather enigmatic. Verse 7, a time, times, and half a time. And then later, 1,290 days, verse 11. And then 1,335 days, verse 12. All three of those responses allude to a, a three-and-a-half-year time frame. But how literally should Daniel have taken this? How, how should we take it today? My guess is that there's some 
dual allusion in these numbers to Antiochus's three and a half year reign of terror, coupled with some ongoing incompleteness, since seven is one of the biblical numbers used for completion, that suggests that many more difficulties are yet to come beyond Antiochus. And the answer to our how long question is equally enigmatic. We know the end is coming. And when it does, we know the Son of God will return in glory. But remember what the Son of God, that is Jesus, told his own disciples. He said, concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son. But the Father only. So church, in the meantime, we wait, we press on, fixing our eyes on the finish line. And by the way, it turns out that fixing our eyes upon the finish line is one of the major ways in which we persevere. The problem is, I'm just not sure that we're looking at it all that much. I'm just not sure we are. I think too often we are too infatuated with the here and the now. You know, with how we'll spend our weekends. Surely we're on our devices too much. Sometimes the drama of our our kids' sports teams totally consumes us. And we avoid questions of death here in the West so much. We really don't like to think about it, which means that we end up avoiding any kind of focus on what comes after death. Here's a wonderful prayer for your Sunday afternoon. At least I think it's wonderful. Be the judge. Wonderful prayer this week would be something like, Lord, would you re-enchant our view of resurrection life? And then, and then bring it into the front of our minds. Would you re-enchant our view, our wonder, concerning this resurrection life that we're looking forward to, and then bring it into the front of our minds? How much your life change if God really did that? I think it would be explosive change. It reminds me, I was abroad, um, actually I think going in my junior year at the University of Florida, and we were in a place... Uh, where you could see every possible star maybe that God has ever made. I know that's scientifically not right, but you know what I'm saying. We could see the Milky Way. I had never seen anything like this. We traveled into a really remote place. There was no light pollution at all. You look up, and it's just like, pow. And it forever changed my understanding of the glory of God. I think about that picture. Often it's seared into my mind. What if the Lord seared into your mind something concerning the beauty and the glory of the resurrection that is to come in which the people of God will shine like the brightness of the stars. Jesus' followers, those who believe, those of us who believe in the greater Daniel, who went to the pit, and unlike Daniel, actually was killed, <laughs> so that those of us in the pit of sin might live. What do we do as we wait? Number one, we pursue ongoing repentance and belief. You know what's fascinating about that church I just mentioned in, in Manipur? 
I was reading an article from one of the pastors that was ministering in that area, and one of the things they kept talking about was how even though this crisis was unfolding and the churches were getting burned and so on and so forth, one of his primary concerns is that they would be using the crisis to hide their sin <laughs> and not repent. Like, what? You should be complaining. And yet, one of his primary pastoral concerns is that they don't use this crisis to hide their own sin and forsake repentance. Number two, remember that God will deal with the unjust, with the wicked. The Antiochuses of the world will not get off the hook. They will awake to shame and everlasting contempt. And now I'll end with a word to those of you who are not in Christ <laughs> in light of what I just said. Repent that you might be saved from the pit and one day return from exile into the promised land that God is preparing for us right now. Daniel apparently died in exile. Isn't that a bummer? After all of this, apparently dies in exile never going back to Judah. But you better believe that he's going to be in the heavenly Judah. And you know, I hope you'll join him. Amen.